Esther 4, 10 through 7. Esther 4, 10 through 7. Then he instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal providence know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, and that he put that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I have called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported, the to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all these Jews will be escape, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you will have to come royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, or day, nights or days. And I and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thank you, Dennis. Good morning. It's good to see you here today. I want to join with Eddie in welcoming you to worship here at Savannah this morning. And again, if you didn't come planning to stay, hope you will plan to stay uh, and eat lunch. I do want to uh, share one piece of sad news, a family that needs to be remembered in prayer. Uh, If you're familiar with congregations down in the Florence, Alabama area, the name Jack Wilhelm may be very familiar to you. Uh, But I got a message on the way up this morning that Brother Jack had uh, suffered a fall and uh, passed away unexpectedly. And so that family uh, would be uh, interested in in your prayers, and especially if you know uh, anything about the Wilhelms. Uh, We're in week 20 of the story, and we're going to talk about Esther. And as we get into that this morning, I, I wanted to ask if you've ever had one of those situations where you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. In recent months, you may have noticed something in your Facebook feed, if you're on Facebook, where there's a video that comes up, and it's a dad's, it's dad's in the right place at the right time. And the one that just came up is dad catching his child as the child flies out of the swing. And there's one where the whole family's sitting on the couch and a toddler's about to roll off backwards and dad does this backhanded catch and catches the toddler. And there's another one where the kid is in, a, in, a, in one of those little cars going downhill out of control and then dad flies into the video from out of nowhere and snatches the child from disaster. And so right place at the right time. Maybe you've had something good happen to you or something's happened because of you and in your mind you realize the only reason it all happened was because you happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, that's kind of the story of Esther. It seems like she's in the right place at the right time. And if you have read this, if you're familiar with this, you know the book of Esther does not mention God one time, and yet God seems to be everywhere in Esther's story. And so as we've done in most weeks, in the event you haven't had time to read, we want to kind of go briefly through what's going on in the book of Esther in chapter 20 of the story for this week. 
Ahasuerus, who's also known as Xerxes, he needs a new queen. And the reason he needs a new queen is because Queen Vashti, uh, she, he was having a party, he was having basically a drunken brawl, and he asked his wife Vashti to come and entertain his drunken friends, and she said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so she is deposed as queen, and so he needs a queen. And so to find the next queen, beautiful young virgins are identified and placed into a, a training program, an upgrade program of sorts where there are going to be oils and spices and good food and cosmetics and all these things to help beautify these young women even more than they already are. And there's a guy living in the capital of Susa. His name is Mordecai. He's an exiled Jew. He's raising his, raising his orphaned cousin Esther. And he gets Esther's attention, or he gets the, the, the people that are looking for a new queen, he gets their attention and gets Esther into this program. Well, chapter 2, verse 17 of Esther reveals that when it's Esther's turn to go before the king, she's been in this program for about a year, when it's her turn to go in there, she goes in and she blows away the competition. Uh, the Bible says the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The other thing that's going on is Esther becomes queen. Mordecai, her cousin, he spends a lot of time at the king's gate. He does this to kind of keep an eye on his cousin, wants to know what's going on with her. He's instructed her not to reveal that she's a Jew. And so one day while he's trolling around the gate, he overhears a plot against Xerxes the king. Two guards are plotting to take Xerxes' life. And so... Mordecai gets word to Esther, who gets word to the king and gives Mordecai credit, and the assassination attempt is foiled. The other thing that's going on at this point is that King Xerxes promotes an evil guy, an Amalekite named Haman. Puts Haman in a very prominent and powerful position over all the princes. And so Haman likes royalty, Haman likes respect. And so when Haman would enter the king's gate, what Haman wanted you to do is he wanted you to hit a knee. He wanted you to bow down, but there was one guy who would not bow down to Mordecai, and that guy's name was, bow down to Haman, and that guy's name was Mordecai. And Haman just, it, it flew all over him. He could not stand it and he could not stand Mordecai and he found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And so instead of just deciding he wanted to kill Mordecai, Haman made the decision, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And so he puts together a plan to get this done and he doesn't set it up the way I would have, but he, he chooses a date by casting a lot, casting a, uh, they called it a pure, a pur, however you want to say that, but it's basically rolling the dice to determine what date you're going to destroy the Jews. And so the date is chosen and it's almost 12 months away. Haman then goes to King Xerxes, gets him to sign off on it, doesn't tell Xerxes that it's actually the Jews, but he gets the decree in stone. Well, Mordecai hears about this. He hears that his own people are about to be destroyed, and so he gets word to Queen Esther. 
And that gets us to chapter 4 where the reading was from. Mordecai is saying, listen, you're in a position right now where you can do something about this. You need to go to the king. You need to intercede. And he, he makes the statement, who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Perhaps God has placed you where you are just for this incident, just for this thing, just so that you can save your people. Well, it's not lost on Esther that the only reason she's a queen is because the other queen got kicked out and she knows why the other king got kicked out and she knows that it's dangerous to go in front of the king without being summoned. You don't do that. You, you have to be summoned. And by just showing up in front of the king, she could die. But Mordecai is persistent and so Esther says, have all the Jews in the city fast for me. See, God's never mentioned, but when you start talking to some people fast for me, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to get God involved. You're trying to get God to intercede. It's, it's that we need God on our side. Have all the Jews fast for me. I'm going to be fasting. Those who attend me, we're going to be fasting. We're going to focus on that, and then I'm going to go in. And if I die, I die. The other thing that's going on here as all of this is unfolding is Haman uh, is making plans to murder Mordecai. He sets up a 75-foot pole and he plans to impale Mordecai on this pole. And uh, in an ironic twist of fate, he ends up having to honor Mordecai instead because of King Xerxes remembering that Mordecai had foiled that assassination plot. But Esther goes into the king and she survives. He, he welcomes her. He's not mad at her. And so he asks her what she wants. And she doesn't want to walk in after 30 days of not having been in front of him. Doesn't want to walk in with bad news. So she says, I'm here. I want to invite you. And I want to invite Haman to a two-day feast. And so the two of them, uh, they come to this feast. And on the second night of the feast, Esther reveals to the king what her real intention is. He says, tell me what's on your mind. And she says, I just want to live. And I want my people to live, but somebody has conspired against us. I'm a Jew, and there's somebody who has conspired to put all of us to death. And the king says, well, who would that have been? And she looks over and says, well, it's this wicked Haman who's sitting here. And so Haman ends up being impaled on the pole that he'd intended for Mordecai. The original extermination decree, Esther goes to the king and says, can we undo that? And he says, in Persia, for some reason, if the king said this was going to happen, you couldn't undo a decree. And so the king says, I've got to leave that one in place, but what I will do is I'll make a second decree that says the Jews can fight back. That's kind of shocking to me because I'm, if I'm a Jew and I'm about to be exterminated, I didn't know I needed a decree to fight back, you know? But he issues a second decree and the Jews do fight back. And on that day, when the Jews were supposed to be exterminated, about 75,000 Jews fall, or, or Persians fall, including the ten sons of Haman, enemies of the Jews, 75,000 of them fall to the Jews. The Jews institute the celebration, the Feast of Purim, celebrating the day that the Jews had ridded themselves of the, these enemies, a day that was turned from potential sorrow into gladness. And chapter 9, verse 32 says, The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. See, the, the story of Esther, the book of Esther, it's a salvation story for the Jews. 
is you got all these people and you got all these things you could talk about and you got to decide where to go with that. And so I thought for just the few minutes that we have, we could briefly notice four admirable characteristics about Esther. And on three of them, we're not going to spend a lot of time. We could talk about her faithfulness. We could talk about her, her loyalty. She's loyal to her family. And uh, in chapter 2 where uh, Mordecai is saying to her, don't let anybody know you're a Jew. There's a good reason for that. Well, she listens to her family. She's loyal to her family. Later on when Mordecai has an opportunity, she makes sure that he is promoted and that he's put in a good position. She's loyal to her people. She selflessly puts herself in harm's way for the sake of the Jews. She's loyal to them and she's loyal to God. It would have been easy for her to turn her back on her people. Sometimes you've seen it happen. People make it big and they forget who they were and they forget where they came from and they kind of turn their back on where they came from. Uh, Esther doesn't do that. And so for us, we could be asking, okay, am I loyal? Am I loyal? Yes, of course, to my family. But, but more importantly, is there anything or is there anyone that I'm more loyal to than God, to Christ, to His church? Am I loyal to the things that are most important? We could talk about Esther and her courage. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16, I will go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now we're going to talk long about courage because we've talked about that in, in other chapters of the story, but the courage required of Esther to be selfless, it's big, and it's noteworthy, and especially in a culture where women aren't valued the way we value women today, where women didn't have a quality like we recognize in women today. This was a time where women are property and women could very easily be set aside. And she displays courage. We could talk about her wisdom. Must have been extremely nervous to go into the king when she hadn't been summoned. But she's wise enough to show up after 30 days of not having been in to see him. She doesn't want to walk in complaining. And so she's, she's wise enough to go in there and say, listen, I want you to come to a feast. She's wise in the way she exposes the plot of Haman. In waiting until the right moment in that feast. She's wise in making sure that Mordecai is promoted. And we talk sometimes about the need. And God teaches it in the Bible. God wants us to be wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is writing there. And he states that he's attempting to be wise in the way he goes about doing God's work. And then he makes this statement where he says, everybody involved in the process needs to be wise. I think of Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We as Christians are in the people business, excuse me. <clears throat> as such, we need to be wise in the way we deal with people. Wisdom is a sign that we've been transformed. There's an equation that we ought to always have on our mind. Information, we get information from the Bible. Information plus application is what leads to transformation. 
That's why we don't just talk about what's in chapter 20 of the story, do a summary of it, and extend the invitation. The reason we talk about it and then look for something that we can apply into our lives is because when we come together to worship by being in the presence of God, by studying from His Word, we want to walk out of here in some form or fashion change for the better. Better position to obey Him, better position to serve Him, better position to make a difference in the lives of others. So God wants us to be wise. And so we always look for something that's transformation. Now, we may not always land on just the right thing, but that's what we look for. And so Esther's wise, and we can learn from that. But then number four, the place that I want to spend just a few minutes as we finish up. One of the characteristics about Esther that is so uh, valuable to us is she's got this willingness to be used providentially by God. See, and any time we throw the word providential or providentially or anything like that on the table, that's one of those phrases that always kind of makes us pause. Because it's one of those areas of life where we sometimes have some questions. But see, Esther embraced the idea, the idea of working with God as opposed to the idea of potentially being in position to hinder God's plan. And it all comes to light in chapter 4. If you want the key verse out of the whole book, in my opinion, it's, it's chapter 4, verse 14 of Esther, where uh, Mordecai is talking to her. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. God's going to do what God's going to do. But then he says, and who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. See, when we ask the question, and Mordecai asks, well, who knows? Well, see, God always knows, but the problem is we don't always know. We're always asking things. We're in a situation, something's going on, and we're asking a question like, well, is this God? Is this a God thing? Is this just something that's occurring? And we land there, and sometimes we don't know the answer. Coy Roper, who retired from Heritage several years ago, lives down in Texas now. In writing about Esther, uh, he said this, and I want to share a couple of things that he wrote with you. He said, Esther accepted Mordecai's challenge, believing that God had indeed providentially put her on the throne so she could have a part in saving His people. Then he goes on to say, we need to be willing to follow her example. Whatever our jobs, opportunities, or hobbies, we need to ask ourselves, have I come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Did God place me in this position to do something for Him? Am I willing to be used for His cause? Our lives should be lived in the hope and belief that God is using us to accomplish His will. See, and Mordecai brings this whole thought process front and center for us because in the beginning of verse 14 he says for if you remain silent he's pointing out the idea that Esther is in a great position but Esther has a choice you can be silent you can pass on this opportunity you can let come what will or you can get involved and you can speak up and you can say something and you can potentially make a difference he's trying to help her understand that she has an opportunity and with the opportunity comes some responsibility but she's got to make a choice to get involved and so with all that in mind I wonder 
if our best success might be achieved if we simply lived with an ongoing assumption, an ongoing mindset that for wherever we are, that God has indeed positioned us for such a time as this. Whatever that time and position may be. If you have a Bible handy, I want to finish up this morning in Romans the 8th chapter and notice some verses from there. And as you're turning to that passage or pulling it up on your device, I would ask the question, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you just feel like you can't win? Maybe it's one of those valleys and it feels like it's a valley that's never going to end. I I don't know. But see, Romans 8, uh, Paul writes about some things through inspiration that, that remind us that really we cannot lose. Or at least against our will cannot lose. Notice beginning, and I'm going to read several verses, so bear with me, but notice verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. It's this idea that the creation... It's been subjected to futility, but the creation's groaning. The creation's giving birth to something. God is working on something. Then verse 23, and not only this... But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So for all of us who are Christians, we're looking ahead to something. We're eagerly hoping. We're looking ahead to see what God is going to do, what's going to happen. In his book, God Work, Randy Harris shared some thoughts that I believe in this passage should cause us to think. He talked about the idea that we live in a world where horrific things happen. And, and that's, we, there's no denying that. There are horrific things happening all over the world. That's why uh, the prayer that will go on tomorrow, praying for the persecuted church, we, we need to pray for those people who don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. 9-11 was referenced in the book God Work and talked about how no one would say that that God wanted that to happen, that God caused that to happen. There are evil people who made some evil choices to do some horrific things. But out of that, God went to work. And out of that, for a lot of missionaries, a lot of people who are doing God's work, that maybe working with people who have who who have Muslim who are Muslims, maybe that wasn't on their radar. But after that horrific event, there were some people who had that on their mind, the idea that that we've got to get Jesus to those people. It's simply the idea that people, we walk through some horrific valleys and some horrific things that happen, and because God works in all of those things, scarred people walk out of those valleys prepared to minister to some other people. 
You know, maybe it's the single mom who years ago didn't know how she was going to do it and she raised that child and she fought those battles and had those nights where she didn't know how it was all going to work out, but, but she made it through and now God has positioned her to minister to that young lady who has no idea how she's going to raise a child by herself. God works that way. When you get to verse 28 of Romans 8, I believe the NIV does an excellent, an excellent job in the way that it translates the verse. Romans 8.28 out of the NIV says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. And so in the book, Harris asks the question, are we actively paying attention to what God may be attempting to do in the world, especially in those areas of our lives where we find brokenness? Are we looking at our brokenness or are we looking for what God might be trying to accomplish? Not the idea that God has done something to us, but the idea that God can climb in and go to work. I'll share one quotation with you. He said, We have to believe and live out the reality that God is taking things somewhere and that nothing can stop it. And our task then is to join God in His reconciling work that He began before the creation. See, that's what Mordecai recognizes in chapter 4 of Esther. God is going to find a way to take care of His people. And if you remain silent, He'll figure out a way. But He's saying, You're positioned such that you can get involved and you can make a difference. And so again, as we leave out of here today, in those moments where we're asking, is this God? I firmly believe that we would do well to to live life with this assumption that we have indeed been positioned for such a time as this. A time to not be silent, a time to get involved, a time to positively make a difference in the world. A time to be courageous. A time to be salt because Jesus talked about that. A time to be light because Jesus talked about that too. A time to fulfill our purpose. Jesus also talked about that all the while remembering that we're blessed because God has revealed to us through Scripture how it all ends. Every knee bowed before Jesus. Philippians 2 talks about that. And because every knee will eventually bow before Him, that's why we ought to be actively attempting to join with God regarding what He's trying to accomplish in reconciling people to Him. The book of Esther, it's an excellent study. And each of the character traits that we see in her, they're important. But the question I want you to walk out of here thinking about today is this. Are we working with God Or as I evaluate my life in an honest moment, am I working with Him or am I kind of hindering Him? Am I I standing in the way of what God's trying to accomplish? Esther had a choice. She could have ignored the opportunity. She could have ignored the responsibility that came with that opportunity. But her choice was to put her life at risk and to get involved. She stepped up and through her courage, many lives were saved. My challenge for us this week, what if all of us could find a way this week to make a positive difference in the life of somebody else for the sake of the kingdom? Embrace the opportunity, lean into the responsibility, and not be silent. 
we need to assume that God has positioned us for such a time as this. Ben is going to lead us in the song of invitation today. And maybe in your life, as you think about it, you realize that God has positioned you uh, to be to make a difference, and maybe you've kind of ignored that, and and maybe you want to do better. Maybe you you want everybody to know that you're going to try to start over, and you're going to try to do better. Maybe you just need the prayers of your church family as you do that. Maybe you're walking through one of those valleys that that seems to have no end, and maybe you need to know that your church family is lifting you up in prayer. We're here to do that for you today as well. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you've not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, we'd love nothing more than to delay eating our lunch as long as we need to to see you born into the kingdom of God today. So if you have a need, please let it be known while we stand and while we sing.